epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 13. We're reading verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, and you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we confess our need to be taught by you. And this can come only through your spirit, enlightening our minds, drawing our wills to find agreement with your will. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that we would in your light see light and that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Since the spring, we've been working through the book of Romans, and it's been a long and slow tour. And we've not quite gotten to the place where we're really close to being done. And it is at this point in a series where things can become tedious and people can wonder what we are going to do next. But I'd like to suggest to you this morning that it's just at this point in the book of Romans where we really need to dig in that we need to focus and we need to persevere, that in these many chapters and this long extended argument that the Apostle Paul is making with this church in Rome of Jews and Gentiles who were embattled and discouraged and infighting with one another, that it's just there that we need to listen and that we need to dig in. Because if you remember, the structure of the book of Romans is peculiar. The first 11 chapters are absorbed with the grace of God, beginning with human condition and sinfulness and brokenness and isolation from God, alienation from him. But then God's answer to that problem and predicament and sending Jesus into the world in his death and resurrection, overcoming our alienation, overcoming our sin, bringing us into right relationship through Jesus. We explored the contours of all of that grace and what it means, tracing that through chapter 7 in our present struggle against sin, and chapter 8, looking towards the future consummation of all things, and chapters 9 through 11, looking at the God who planned all these things and is executing them and bringing them out. And it is the grace of God, rich and full and free, that's celebrated there at the end of chapter 11 in a hymn-like set of verses. And then we arrive in chapter 12. And something shifts, something changes. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living and a holy sacrifice. And this is why it's important to dig in, because Paul arrives here in chapter 12 at the so what. He's announced the grace of God that's intercepted your lives where God has intersected you in the middle of your life story and drawn you to himself, and now it is the so what. Tracing from chapters 12 through 16, the consequences of what it means to be one who has been intersected by the grace of God and all that it means for us. And why this is important is summed up in a story that Jesus himself tells in Luke 17. 
He was on the way to Jerusalem, and he was passing near, near through Galilee and Samaria, we are told, and 10 lepers approach him, and they cry out, Jesus, Master, Son of God, have mercy on us. And so Jesus tells them to go and to present themselves to the priest, and they did so, and they were healed. They were healed by the command of Jesus. God's grace had intersected their lives, and they were forever changed, made new, transformed. And then Jesus relays the story that only one of the men returned and gave thanks. That one of the men returned and offered praise and glory to God. And friends, this is what we want to avoid. That experiencing the grace of God, we simply turn to our comforts and to our own joy. Rather than returning to God, knowing what it means to offer ourselves to him. And this is what Romans 12 through 16 is all about. It gives us the contours of the Christian life as to what it means to be a person who has met God, who's encountered his grace and his mercy and forgiveness, and then what it looks like to live in that grace and mercy and forgiveness. And today we are finding a summary argument about the contours of the Christian life. And so it's critical for us to ask, ask this question once again. What are the contours of the Christian life that we find here in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10? The first thing that we're going to see here is the dynamic of the Christian life. There's an imperative in these verses, and it's difficult to miss. It's a commandment that we are to owe no one anything except love. This is the one debt that we are permitted to keep. And what Paul is doing is he's summing up a rather long argument that began all the way back in verse 9 of chapter 13, where he instructs us to let love be genuine. And he then builds a large argument about love from verse 9 all the way through this part of the chapter. And he speaks somewhat in growing concentric circles. In verses 9 through 13, he first argues about Christian love for our brothers and sisters who share our fundamental convictions of faith, those who are gathered in God's house, members of the church that we share in. The young Roman church needed to hear this because of their own struggles with one another. There was ethnic strife and division between Jew and Gentile. They didn't understand one another. We're coming from different cultural backgrounds, and there were some different beliefs about Jesus being introduced. They didn't particularly care for one another. And so Paul instructs them that they were to love one another genuinely and sincerely. But then in verses 14 through 21, we see that we can't just simply rest with loving our Christian neighbor. No, there we find the argument developed that we're also to love our enemy, our adversary, our opponents, that we are to love them by blessing them and not cursing them, that we are to love them by seeking to overcome evil, even when it's pointed at us with good. And then Paul develops the argument one step further in the circles where he speaks of our duty to love governing authorities. And we covered this in detail last week in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. 
And that we see that there that submitting to governing authorities, even secular governing authorities, Roman governing authorities in Paul's context, American governing authorities in ours, is an act of love. That the governing authorities have been commissioned by God, instituted and established by him to uphold good social order. And that the Christian is to give thanks for that. Because anarchy is not the ideal by any means. And so it's a function of neighborly love to receive that good social order under the civil authority. And so Paul then returns to sum up this whole argument of love that grows from the Christian neighbor to even enemies and opponents to all the way to the secular governing authorities. The Christian, the Christian life is one bound by love. And so then he sums it all up. Owe one, no one anything except to love each other. I go through that detail for your sake and for my own to feel the impressive weight of the command to love each other. It's a steep hill to climb, especially when you and I consider two things. When we consider the selfishness of our own hearts, that we're turned in upon ourselves, and we're disordered in our loves, and that we have a penchant to pursue our own good over those of others. It makes this difficult to hear. But it's also difficult to hear because we know and perceive the unloveliness of others. We know perhaps our own, but then we also know that it can be difficult. And so this can be tremendously weighty, and we don't want to undersell that or not recognize it. And so the natural question for each of us is simply to ask, it, how can I possibly step into all of that, all of that love that Paul says I am indebted to, that I am to hold this one debt and to exercise? And friends, this is where it's critical to keep in mind the dynamic of the Christian life and to realize the context that in those 11 chapters of the grace of God, rich and free and full, set upon you even in eternity past, applied to you as you come to faith in Jesus, accomplished for you in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that then, because of that grace, which is yours. He then appeals to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And what we always must remember in the Christian life, especially when we meet these steep commandments that feel difficult and hard, where we feel the pressures both inside of our own hearts and also outside and the pure demands of these commandments when we weigh them. We must remember that the gospel is the foundation, that the gospel is the motivation, and the gospel is also the stimulation of the Christian life, that it is by the mercies of God that we present ourselves as living and holy sacrifices. And that in our obedience, in loving our neighbors and all that that entails, that we're not earning or deserving and we're not accomplishing, that we're not gaining God's favor, 
but rather we're responding. Like that healed leopard who returned to Jesus, we are that man responding to the grace of God in love for neighbor as he's commanded us. And so we love because we've been loved by God. We love because we are loved by God today in Jesus. We love because nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that's ours in Jesus. A few years ago, I purchased a new blower for my driveway. I decided to go with the electric over the gas to save money. That was my mistake. After finishing my yard work on it's going to be the inaugural usage of the blower, I pulled it out, got everything set up, turned it on, nothing. Looked at it and thought, how did I buy the one off the shelf that isn't working? Played with it some more, looked at the owner's manual, walked back over to it, tried to turn it on again, nothing. And then I looked and realized that I hadn't plugged it in. And friends, this is the way that we often try to live the Christian life. It's that we try to live the Christian life separated and severed from the source. And you can't. The weight of the commands, the demands of obedience, the claim that God puts upon you and upon me to love, to have no outstanding debts but that, that I owe that to everyone, that the only way to live into that command is to hang and depend upon the source, to be constantly encouraged and motivated and stimulated towards a life of love because we have experienced what it means to be loved by God. This is the dynamic of the Christian life that we have to hold on to each and every day. And second, in these verses, we also see the obligation of the Christian life. Now, we've already stated it. Verse 8, no one, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And so Paul has just said that we owe something to secular governing authorities. And then he turns around and says that we are not to leave any debts unpaid, but this one a debt which we should always be attempting to pay off in full, but also a debt that we're never going to satisfy. We owe love to one another because God has laid claim on our lives in his love. But it's important to point out a nuance here as to how Paul argues in verse 8. Because he says something specific about who we are to love. He says that for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The ESV rendering is fine, but in the original, there is a definite article before the word other. And so it is the other. And you may think I'm attempting to splice hairs, but there's something important here at stake. So the verse could read something like this, for the one who loves the other has fulfilled the law. When we just read it as another, we can just simply think that, oh, well, we're just supposed to love someone other than ourselves. But rather what Paul is getting at 
is that we are to love the other whom we encounter in our lives, the one who's outside of us, whether that be our Christian neighbor, the one we are in relationship with, the member of our church, whether that be that enemy or opponent, or whether that be that secular governing authority, as we encounter them, we have obligation to them, the other, not simply one of our own choosing, one of our own convenience, someone that we find neat and tidy who fits into our lives. That's not what we're being asked to do here. And what Paul is saying is that we have no permission to negotiate like that about who we're going to love with strength and emphasis. He says that we are to love the other that we encounter, not the one of our choosing, but the one in God's providence and arrangement of your life that you meet, whose needs that you can address. This is our obligation. It's our unending debt. And it has to be a point of constant reflection. And as we constantly reflect, we need to enter into that cycle of turning once again from considering who we are to love, that we are loved by God and will always be loved by God, and to allow that to reinforce this idea of obligation to love one another. But finally, in these verses, we also see the goal of the Christian life. Paul goes on in verse 10, where he summarizes and he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so he states very plainly that love fulfills the law. And in doing so, he quotes several commandments of what is commonly thought of as the second table of the Decalogue. But simply the commandments, he uses them as an illustration of what he's speaking of about neighborly love. And it can seem that Paul is simply saying that the whole duty of the Christian life, the one thing that matters is that we are to love. That if you love, you fulfill the whole law. However, there's some important nuance here. This is not exactly what Paul is saying. He wasn't blind to what Jesus said. That there's actually two great commandments. The first that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And that a second is nearly like it, that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And so exactly what is going on? Why does Paul say that the whole law is fulfilled in loving your neighbor? What he means by fulfilling the law here is that the law is brought to the brim, that it's filled up because he's focused upon this neighborly love that was absent from this church in, in Rome that was struggling with this, that he fills up our duties and our obligations. He brings them to the brim, that this is what we do when we complement our love for God with love for the neighbor, that we're freed by the Spirit of God, as we saw in Romans 8, verse 3. We're now freed to walk in the way of the law, and that this is what the Christian does, and this is how we bring fulfillment to the law. That we add this concern to our love for God, that we are to love our neighbor. And so what exactly does that look like? It's important for us to recognize that we're never left without definition. That love leads us back to the law. 
Paul lists four of the commandments. He tells us this is what it looks like. He tells us that we're not to murder, that we're not to steal, that we're not to covet, that we're not to commit adultery. He's just simply providing these as examples. And then he mentions any other commandments. And so clearly he's not limiting it to this. But what's incredibly helpful for us in our day-to-day lives is to recognize that in these commandments, they come to us in a negative form. Do not do this. But theologians throughout the centuries have always noted something important. Calvin made great emphasis of it. That when we find the commandment in a negative form, that if we're really to perceive what our duties are before God, that we also have to consider the positive. And so what it means to love our neighbor has that negative side. You can take the example of coveting, that we are not to long for the possessions of someone else, that we are not to be discontent. This is the negative side. But the positive side of the commandment is that we're to cultivate contentment, that we're to work, not to be envious, and we're to develop the positive things and the positive sides of that. And that in doing that, we're not simply working on our own spirituality, but as we work inside the depth and research, and, the, and the dark reserves of our heart, as we do that spiritual exercise and work, that you're actually creating a good neighborhood. You're creating a place where people can flourish because there's not envy and discontentment and covetousness at its heart lurking in the background. Friends, this is the content of what it means to love, that God gives us all the direction, and this fulfills, it tops off the law. It builds on the commandment to love God, and it brings our obligations and duties to completion. And so take the invitation, the so what. Be that leper who returns, healed, forgiven, and free, and returns And here's the gentle claim of Jesus to love your neighbor and to take up all the duties of that at the core of loving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, of knowing what it means to bless even enemies and to overcome their evil with good, that this too is a duty of love, and to submit to governing authorities that love does no wrong. This is the contour of the Christian life. Let's ask God for his help to do just that. Father, we acknowledge all of our sinful weaknesses, our selfish love that prioritizes our own needs in which we're preoccupied, our distaste for unloveliness in others that prevents us from stepping into your commandment. We know that we need your help Remind us of the great dynamics of the gospel, that we've been loved by you. And because this claim is placed upon our lives, we are to turn in love. And so help us to be like that leper who returns. And may we glorify you in living in this contour and shape of love. 
Direct us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.